Hello and welcome to the Untold Stories podcast. I'm Osama Gawish and will join me today in this episode, Amelia Smith, Sally Hoff and Georgina Trillor. A quick reminder for all our audiences, you also can join us in this discussion. Just press the call button and you will be held in the queue and then the floor will be yours. In this episode, we will discuss the untold stories of the death in the English Channel. Last week, at least 27 people died in the English Channel when attempted to reach the UK in a perilous journey. The tragedy was the worst recorded incident for death in the Channel since the International Organization for Migration started collecting data in 2014 and has left both the UK and France. What we do know until now. A 24-year-old woman from Iraqi Kurdistan has been identified as one of the 27 people who died after a boat carrying migrants sank in the channel. Her name is Baran Nouri. She was traveling to be with her fiancé in the UK, who in a dinghy carrying the group of migrants capsized in the channel. Three children and seven women are among those who drowned as they attempt the perilous crossing. The migrants, the majority of whom are believed to be Kurdish and Afghan, died about 10 kilometers off the coast of Calais. Baran's fiancé said he had been tracking her during the crossing until her GPS signal disappeared. The man said his wife had been traveling with Afghan and Kurdish refugees. He told the British newspaper The Telegraph that he had continuous contact with her and was tracking her live GPS. After four hours and 18 minutes from the moment she went into that port, he thinks they were in the middle of the sea. Then he lost her. Her devastated father, Nouri Mohammed Amin, urged France to put a stop smuggling gangs who he described as poachers. Another victim of this disaster was Iraqi Kurd Mohammed Aziz, who is 31. His friends fear he was among the dead after he called them in a panic, saying the port may sink. Iraqi Kurd Bishraw Aziz told the Daily Mail in the UK that his friend had called him saying, it is not good, the engine isn't powerful enough, I don't know if we are going to make it. They have not heard anything from him since. In another case, the family of Denise Ahmed Mohammed, a 27 Kurdish migrant, received a voicemail from a man traveling with him, asking them, to pray for them, but have heard nothing since. Another story. Two survivors named on social media as Muhammad Khaled from Kurdistan and Omar from Somalia told investigators that their dinghy was hit by a container ship. A group of Afghan teenagers living in one of the migrant camps fear their friends are among the dead after receiving no news since they attempt the crossing on November the 24. Riaz Muhammad, 12 years old, his relative Sher Muhammad, 17, and two other teenagers, Palawan, 16, and Shinai, 15, they all have not been heard from since. So this was what we do know about the worst disaster that happened in the English Channel since 2014. And for further details, let me introduce our guest 
Sally Hoff, and Georgina Triller, and our co-host in this episode, Amelia Smith. Sally, as a volunteer, has run a weekly drop-in center for asylum seekers from Napier Park since April 2021 with a core of group of six NGOs, including some fire projects, Human for Rights Network, and just with refugee services and arts refuge. In her day job, she teaches English to resettled refugees, mainly from Syria and Afghanistan and also a mentor with Kent Refugee Action Network. And our second guest, Georgina Trelaur, she's a PhD candidate at the University of Kent. She's studying social movements and is also an elected Green Party member for Folkestone and Hythe District Council. And our co-host in this episode, Amelia Smith, she's a journalist who has lived in and reported from across the Middle East and North Africa for over a decade. And she has edited two nonfiction books about Egypt and the Arab Spring. She now lives in Kent on the southeast coast of the UK, where she has interviewed several people in relation to the Channel Crossing. So welcome to you all in Untold the Story to this episode. And Amelia, please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Osama. And exactly what happened at the end of November was really such a huge tragedy. And it has left many people asking why taking such a dangerous journey for the 27 people who died who were in this boat was their only option, particularly as several of them, as you yourself mentioned, had family ties in the UK. One of the women was trying to join her fiancé, another one was trying to join his brother. Yet, despite how dangerous it is, people will continue to make the crossing. I mean, already this year, over 25,000 people have already made the journey. They have crossed the English Channel, the sea which separates England from France. And if you stand on the English side of the Channel, in certain parts, you can see France very clearly. it kind of looms on the horizon and it appears to be very close, but actually this proximity is deceptive because this short stretch of water is very, very cold. It has extremely strong currents and it's also one of the busiest shipping lanes in the world. So it's a very treacherous journey that people have to make. So when people do arrive, you know, seeking asylum, seeking a a safe place to live, they land on the UK's southeast coast, many of them into the county of Kent, which is where myself and Sally and Georgina live. And it's a very dramatic coastline. You have these huge sheer chalk cliffs that drop directly into the ocean and The coastline itself is dotted with former wartime defences. You know, there are Martello Towers from the Napoleon era. There are fortresses. There is Dover Castle. And and they really reinforce this image or that this is a border. And for people arriving, when they arrive, perhaps this is the first thing they see. Or at the very least, you know, when, when England comes Um, appears in the horizon and 
So further inland, Kent is also home to Napier Barracks, which is a former military barracks, a former military camp, which used to house soldiers and now houses refugees. And this has really been at the centre of many debates on immigration locally and nationally. And it's also really underscored that there is a division. There are people in this community who very much support refugees arriving, very much want to welcome them and for them to live in a in a humane way. But at the same time, there are people who who oppose who oppose the people arriving. So that's just to give you an image of the kind of geographical location and where people making this journey are, are arriving into when, when they arrive in, in England. Thank you, Amelia, for this amazing information. And let me start and kick off this discussion with you, Sally. What do we know so far about this disaster? If you have any untold stories about uh, the 27 victims. Um, well, I... I, I don't have any stories about the, the victims themselves. I, I mean, I, I have I've been asked, actually, it's, I, I do get contacted by various news agencies asking me if I have heard any information or anything like that. But in this case, um, I hadn't. Um, I, the following week, so we, we run our drop-in for Napier Barracks every Wednesday. So the people who are resident at Napier Barracks, they're asylum seekers, they, they can come to the drop-in. They can um, they can get advice about their asylum claim if they need to be put in touch with um, an asylum lawyer. We can arrange that. We basically give them a safe space to come. Um, also, if they just want to relax and have a cup of tea, we do art therapy activities. Sometimes we do singing and things like that. So it, it just depends who's there that particular week. Um, so um, basically, uh, the week after this tragedy happened, because it happened on the Wednesday, it happened on the in the evening when we just got home from running a drop-in. And um, the following week, some of the men wanted to talk about it, and some of them said, you know, it was one of the worst experiences of my life, you know, trying to cross that piece of water which looks like um, Amelia was saying, it doesn't look so far away, but actually it's an incredibly difficult strait of water to cross. But they talked a little bit about the fact that there were children on the boats they were with and and then they just sort of went silent and there was just like a look in their eyes, like they didn't want to relive it. They didn't want, and of course, this is not something that we do when we're running the drop-in anyway, because it's not a place where we we expect people to talk about difficult experiences unless they want to bring something up. Um, but, you know, this, this it's not the experience of everybody who is um, housed at Napier Barracks. People have arrived in the country in different ways, but it's fair to say that many of them have had to face that crossing. And it's rare that they want to talk about it because it's, it's, it's incredibly frightening. And people often leave in the dead of night so that they can't be seen. So you're, you're, effectively just pushing your flimsy boat overloaded boat out into into blackness you can't see anything and there might be huge cargo ships suddenly rearing up above you in the water but i mean it, I, I think it must be the most terrifying thing 
But Sally, yeah, we, we all know yeah. how dangerous, how perilous this journey is crossing the channel, especially in this yeah. uh, winter, in this cold water. But the, the, there is a logic question, actually. What would make these people get on a dinghy and make this perilous journey? There is no other way. If you've got, you might have family in the UK, there might be a myriad reasons why you might want to come to the UK. Um, but there is, you can't just step on the ferry and then when you get to Dover, say that you want to claim asylum, which is what you could do if you were flying to Heathrow. When you get to Heathrow, you can just declare yourself at the border and say, I want to claim asylum. You can't do that if, you, if you've arrived in Calais. You, 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 you have no option. What, was, what used to be more common was people would try to get onto lorries and to, to get them to break through to, into the Euro tunnel. But obviously that's become a lot more difficult because there's a lot more security around the port now. So, so now the routes are just directly across the water and it's something that the people smugglers are obviously making the most out of, but the people smugglers are exploiting the system that has been frankly created by um, various different governments. And as a refugee, I had an experience to had no choice um, except fled my country and seeking asylum in the UK. But actually, there is an argument about if they are already in France or any other European countries, why do they not seek asylum there? Why do they want to come to the UK and risking their life crossing the channel? I think... I think most do actually stop in, I think percentage-wise, most do stop in France or stop in, in, in Germany. In fact, Germany, I think, has taken over a million in the last few years at least, um, way, way more than the UK has taken. Um, so most actually do. And I think there is, there's obviously some, like you said, usually like family ties or there's just the ability to speak English that is still encouraging them to keep going and try to get to the UK, even though they might have to risk you know, crossing the channel um, in a very, in an extremely dangerous way. Um, there is a one um, news publication here in the UK, which is um, very popular. They they put their uh, first page uh, on the 25th of November. They said, why France didn't prevent them? Uh, how did you see this? Uh the thing is, you hear conflicting things from what actually happens in somewhere like Calais. For example, last year when we were speaking to people who, who had come to Napier, they said every night their tents, their, their encampments would be destroyed and the French police would, when they, when they destroyed their tents, they would, they would literally come around and beat their tents with batons, destroy everything they had. And the, the, all they would say to them was, go to UK, go to UK, go to UK. We don't want you here. You know, so the, the, <laughs> the French police or the French military police sound like they're doing their complete opposite. Um, I mean, that's just a report from people that we spoke to directly last year. I don't know whether the same thing is happening now. And Sally, so you were working before you ran the drop-in, I think you were running, you were the lead volunteer for Care for Calais when you, and you were working actually inside Napier Barracks, weren't you, almost on a daily basis. Could you? Yes. 
So could you kind of describe or paint a picture for us about what it was like inside for Napier Barracks for the men inside? Yeah. So well, the first time we made contact with people there, they said they didn't have medical care. They didn't have they didn't have water, which we were sort of a bit shocked that they didn't have water. I think they couldn't drink the tap water because the tap water was going through a very old system in this 130 year old buildings. So there were some really, really sort of basic things that they didn't have which we were quite shocked about. And they were asking for things like paracetamol, which we were like, we're not sure whether we can give you paracetamol. It's a bit, you know, um, because at that point we weren't even volunteers or anything. Um, but eventually we were able to start going into the camp to drop off donations from the local community. We put a call out for donations of clothing and we were sort of inundated and the group of volunteers got a bit larger at that point. But we were all sort of talking like local people who just wanted to get involved and help. And I was one of them. And so we were sort of given special access to the camp. And we had a room on site where we could sort out the clothing. And then eventually with a view to, to um, sorting out a distribution. I started to work a bit more closely with Care for Calais because I felt a bit unprotected just going in there as a as an individual and I wanted to work with the charity so that I could feel like there were some sort of safeguarding measures in place and um, because everything felt very much like it, it had been thrown together at the last minute like they you know the place wasn't fitted out properly like they didn't have partitions between their beds they were sort of building it like as they were going as people were arriving and I think that the residents also had the same feeling of what is this place? You know, what? Why are we here? Why are we? Why are we suddenly in this place which is surrounded with barbed wire, which is the kind of place that I have fled from? And I, I came to the UK for safety, and I've ended up somewhere that looks like somewhere I've tried to escape from. So lots of people were really, really afraid. And also that lack of medical care was the key thing, because I think the junior minister for immigration, Chris Philp, at the time wrote to Damien Collins and said there will be no impact on, on local services. And they meant, well, they meant sort of doctor's surgeries and things like that, which is not actually the case, because they all have to use a tiny local doctor's surgery. But they have like this gatekeeper nurse who's on site who will who will who will i'm not sure if he even prescribes medicine but he can get medicine for them but they it stops them from having to go to the surgery and put pressure on the surgery but then they don't actually get to see an actual gp when they might have quite a serious ailment so they're not really getting in my opinion and still not really getting adequate medical care now but it was even worse this time last year I mean, everything was worse this time. I mean, I, I look back at last year and I think how horrific it was. And actually, in the, lots of kudos has to be given to um, a group of men in there who spoke out and they used their voice. And they, you know, we said to them, you know, you are activists. You, obviously, you were an activist in your country as well, but you're an activist. Here. This is what you're doing. Because they were, they were organising protests. They, we would give them pens and cardboard and material to, to make banners and things if they wanted to, to protest their situation. And they were the ones that forced change. 
in the end. I mean, we helped them, but they were the ones that did it, and they were very brave. And some of them were, some of them suffered heavily in the in the process, and they ended up arrested. And yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey. And what happened to them in the end? Um, well, obviously, none of them are there now. They've been dispersed throughout the country. I, I don't. I'm trying to think of this particular group. I don't think any of the, any of them have had their asylum claim accepted as yet. They're still in that limbo. But some of them are living in at least they're living in shared accommodation where they have a kitchen and they're living with their friends. So they're not they're no longer in this sort of which is something actually is quite important in this dormitory style accommodation. So Napier Barracks is divided into about 15 blocks um, of 28 people in each block. But then that block is divided into two smaller blocks with about 14 on each side. But they share very limited bathroom facilities. So last year when we were, when we still are in the midst of a pandemic, the volunteers and all the NGOs and Public Health England as well, everyone was constantly flagging the fact that this putting people in close proximity sharing all of these um, very limited bathroom facilities was an extremely bad idea and um, we were just expecting there to be a covid outbreak at some point and we could never have imagined that it would be as bad as it was i mean there were about at the peak there were about 200 people infected with covid but it was higher than that we think it was there was probably about 300 because there were about 90 people who who refused to be tested. So that was almost like two thirds of the people. I think it was like four, four to five hundred people there at the time. So 300 people had COVID. Um, that was in January wow. at the beginning of this year. It's a frustrating to, to just hear such news and dealing with asylum seekers with the way that the Home Office and the government's dealing with. So the, the Georginia and welcome with a stage. And my, my first question is the Home Secretary, Preti Patel, said that there is no quick fix for the migration crisis after this disaster. Uh, what are your views of that? Mm, well, I think my, my views are that I think the, the direction of travel of this government certainly isn't the right direction. Um, I'm, well, I'm, I'm Australian. Um, originally, I've lived here for, for 16 years, but um, I recall when the, the Australian government um, went in this direction about 20 years ago with offshore processing and um, real pushback tactics and um and and really um penalizing um you know those who arrive um you know by by boat and and uh, you know the past two decades have shown that um it's not it's not effective it 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 costs huge amounts of money it's not the deterrent that they they think it um you know they they want it to appear to look like it will be um and and it's sort of it's like the it's it's true the problem is isn't going away but this direction is not 
not the solution. Um, safe routes of travel is is the solution. So um, that's my that's my view on it. Um, that it's it's been tried and tested, and I know it looks like you know sort of strongman <laughs> tactics, but but it's not. There's there's no strength in this in this um, in this policy. Um, so yeah, I, I, my view and um, you know the, the Green Party's view is certainly that um, detention of asylum seekers is is not um, appropriate, considering past traumas and and all of that. And um, you know we should be working, put more commitment into um, you know addressing the the underlying causes, um, which you know result in. And people seek, seeking refuge, and um, yeah, so so they're my thoughts. Yeah. So, so Georgina, from a local council perspective, or what is the role of the local council when a tragedy like twenty, the the drowning of twenty seven people at the end of November? Yeah. So there's no formal. I mean, as a district council. Um, there's no, there isn't a formal response, um, really. I mean, even with um, the the like Napier Barracks in the district, that's that's not been really in in the council's control. It's a, it's a Home Office um, issue. So, but we do have a political voice, sort of on a a local level. I mean, we as elected councillors, we. Um, you know, represent the the um, you know the the thoughts and concerns of of our residents, and we we just we do have an opportunity to discuss these issues, and and you know that certainly did come up in our most recent um, full council meeting, um, but it because it's it's sort of outside of the remit, um, you know, a tragedy like that. Of the, district council the sort of the immediate remit it, it's more of a um often just sort of descends into an ideological debate which um certainly um highlights the polarization in politics even at a local level um so i, I suppose as, as district councillors we're tuned into our our community and and the community response um but as far as our powers to to do anything other than say, um, you know, engage in like uh, resettlement schemes, this this tragedy, um, th- yeah, has has sort of no immediate bearing on on us. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the most ridiculous thing we have seen in the first hours after this disaster is the blame game between the UK and the French government. They were playing blame game. So my question to Georginia, Sally, and even to Amelia and to our audience, who should be held accountable for such a disaster when 27 innocent people died in the English Channel? So whoever wants to answer, just jump in. Well, I, I mean, I would say anyone engaging in these pushback tactics and vilifying those who are prepared to, um, you know, save <laughs> save people in distress. So, um, does anyone who is def- defying, you know, the maritime laws of, of um, 
uh, of saving people and making a concerted effort to to provide safety so you know who, whoever whatever side is is engaging in, in those tactics and I think a part of this um, you know the bill on the, the UK's side is definitely a, a sort of a um, real sort of direction towards those pushback tactics so um, yeah yeah, and so I Sally, can't speak for the French really. I don't know what the French, you know, policy is. Yeah. Yeah, and Sally, what about you? Yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking about my answer to this. I just feel like it's I feel like it's the responsibility of the UK government because people are trying to get here. They're trying to get to the UK. This is where they want to be, and we don't take enough. We don't take our, our fair share of, of refugees from around the world. We take a tiny, tiny percentage. And yeah, you could argue that we are a small-ish country, but we have a reasonably strong economy. Um, I just think it's just our government playing to their base of supporters. It's like throwing them red meat. I mean, that's really the only way that I can describe it and it I find it I just I find it just so frustrating because there are so many people like myself that feel very strongly that we should be playing our part historically you know the United Kingdom Britain has has, a, it has had a huge part to play in um, upheaval in in Africa in the Middle East in so many different parts of the world, the UK is responsible for some of the for some of the problems that we see now, and and we do we you know we there like I said there are so many people like myself who are here we're we are we are ready and we're willing to help and there so you know we do have space we we can take more people and people that want to come here. They they want to work and they want to they want to make a contribution and they you know there's not one person that I've met out of the hundreds and hundreds of people I've met over the last few years who hasn't said all I want to do is be able to make a life for myself and work and 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 contribute. I mean this is fantastic. I mean this is like when you and I, I work with unaccompanied minors as well and. I think it was um, Kent Refugee Action Network was saying we should see these these young people as bundles of potential because that's what they are. Exactly. And I actually had a question for both of you about so about where is public opinion on this issue? So, for example, quite recently, you know, there have been right-wing protests in Dover against people arriving. There was an incident in Hastings where I believe people tried to to block one of the rescue boats from coming into shore. But also at the same time, there was a story recently about a fisherman in Dungeness who actually rescued two men who were on an inflatable canoe and gave them sugary black coffee until the border force arrived. So you hear lots of different stories um, from each side. And I was wondering, is it possible to kind of gauge where public opinion is on this issue? 
I, I would just say it's just so incredibly polarized. Um, if if any if the the sort of the makeup of the district council that I'm on is anything to go by and, and representative of of the sentiment in the community, it's it's just utterly utterly polarized. We've got um, you know one end of the the spectrum. We've got. We've got a fair few greens, which um, you know I think certainly represent a much more compassionate and and welcoming welcoming um, uh, position. And and you know we've still got we've got a couple of UKIP um, members and um, and just you know the last council meeting there was a um, a sort of a bit of a bit of a moment of. Of conflict because um, of because of the um, some of the rhetoric coming out um, from from that side of things. So it's 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 just so so polarized. Um, I'd I'd say you know I wouldn't you know I'd say that not not everyone who you might assume would be um, you know suspicious or or um, un- unwelcoming are you know i think there are there are lots of sort of contradictions in the community as well um yeah but on the whole it's um yeah just just extremely polarized um and you know and and as you said you gave those examples of um you know there's people in in hastings you know preventing the the lifeguard going out and um but yet yeah, yeah a, a local fisherman who who was very helpful and and you know the amount of community support though in in the district especially surrounding napier barracks like the number of people who came forward to to volunteer and you know the goodwill and um and you know, yeah, positive action. Um, I mean, there's. It's quite telling, actually. When when Napier first opened, the the district council took um, questions from the public and um, you know tried to answer them, but published pretty much published them all. On the, and they're still up there. I checked today on the on the council's website and. And I had a problem with it at the time because a lot of those questions really do amplify, you know, a lot of misconceptions as well and incorrect facts. And and there was no filter of fact checking and and all of that. So, you know, but but the questions really ranged all the way from, you know, very um, sort of, yeah, anti-unwelcoming um sort of suspicious um positions and then all the way to to questions of you know how can I help how can I donate things um and you know what what more can the council do you know of anything to to support so um yeah really really polarized I'd agree I'd agree with um Georgina on that It's, it's very split one thing that sadly we do that does happen a lot is the men experience racist abuse so for example when they're walking from um the barracks to the drop-in center which is not very far 
it often happens that people as they're driving past will just slow their cars down, wind their windows down and just shout abuse at them and tell them to go back to where they came from and and they just they just keep their heads down, they just ignore it. They're also frightened of telling the police because they may have had difficult experiences with the police or with the military back in their own countries, so they don't they're not they they may have a good reason not to be very trustful of the police and not think that, that they're going to be taken seriously. So that's something that we also talk to them about. It's like actually that you've you've been racially abused. You can you can report this, and it is really important that you report it. And it's important that we have a record of how much abuse is actually going on. Um, in terms of people who are who are resident at the barracks. Um, so that that is an issue. But that again, like George saying is saying it's 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 polarized definitely because you have you know all of the volunteers all of the different ngos helping out and then you have other people in the community who they you know they're they're just coming out with with hate speech basically not and not just online but you know in in person as well yeah, and I think another another important point of this crisis is the the, the government's obligation to the, the uh, immigrants, the refugees, and the asylum seeker. And one of the most arguable points uh, these days is um, the um, government's and migration bill, the nationality and borders bill. There was a debate in the House of Commons this afternoon regarding this point. And my question to you, Sally, actually, is Preeti Patel has said that the bill will encourage refugees to use official routes, but opponents have said it will punish people who arrive via irregular routes and that it divides people into good refugees and bad refugees. Yeah. Can, can you, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine with me a refugee arriving after spending hours on a dinghy on that channel and then he faced this bill yeah. and being told they cannot have limited access to, can only have limited access to family reunion. Yeah. So what are your views on the nationality and border bill? I think we're going back to the 19th century of where we used to have this narrative of deserving and undeserving poor. And actually, we probably still have that narrative going on now under this government. But it's like the deserving and undeserving refugees. There's no such thing, you know. They're all the same. They're all deserving. Um, I mean, now I teach resettled refugees. So they are refugees who've come here through resettlement programs directly, mainly from Syria, some from Lebanon, but obviously they're Syria, Syrian, but they've been displaced to Lebanon. Um, and then obviously I'm, work, I'm working with people from Napier Barracks who've come here in the so-called wrong way um, because they haven't. But I'm, but sorry, going back to the resettled refugees, I mean, that that program itself for resettlement is, is tiny. I mean, I don't even know how my students manage to get onto the resettlement program. I I'm guessing that be, because they are, most of them are um, there may be a member of the family who is severely disabled or has, you know, suffered serious injuries in the conflict in Syria um or has or they've been white helmets uh and that was well, that's part of the reason i think why they've been able to get onto a resettlement program but again it's just the resettlement program is is tiny so that's a lottery in itself even trying to get onto that so i mean if you can't get onto the resettlement program and you need to get your family out of the country 
then you're, that's your, your only other option is to, to, to pay the people smugglers or to, you know, or, or, to, or just to leave on foot and try to make your way across Europe. But it's like when you become a refugee, you, you don't have any good options anymore. All of your choices are bad choices. You just have to take the least bad choice. Um, that's how I sort of see it. But um, I, yeah, I, it does, it does, I find it upsetting this, this, the way that the government are dividing, you know, or trying to divide between or, uh, a so-called deserving refugee and an undeserving refugee. I just think there's no such thing. Yeah, is it is it contradictory that uh, Preeti Patel um, criticizes and attacking those smugglers and want to end uh, their illegal work, and at the same time they put pressure on the House of Commons to just agree with her immigration bill? Yeah, I I think as as long as you don't give people humanitarian visas and safe ways to arrive in this country, then the the traffickers will be there. They'll be there to exploit that, to exploit the system. They're just a symptom of the system. Yeah. Okay. And um, before we uh, go ahead with the immigration bill, I think we have one of the audience, Ayub. You want to join us? Uh, yes, hi. Uh, my name is Ayub. I'm a working journalist based in London. I just want to share uh, with you a fear or a question about how the French now, the French government, see uh, this problem of the immigrant and uh, who are crossing the channel. I think for me that it's become like a, a card, a pressure card. For the for the president Macron or for the, the the French government against the UK, all we know that in France we are preparing for presidential election in the next year, and all the political programs for all the candidates Eric Zemmour from from the, the right wings, uh, Marie Le Pen, even for Macron, it's about immigration. So I think that things will get worse for the immigrant for the next year, from maybe for the next year, not just for the next year. And I think that this rivalry between, rivalry between UK and France about a lot of things, especially after the Brexit, about uh, the, the fishing in the UK seas, about other things. Now, the, the government French think that they have uh, a strong card which is the immigrant, and they want to put more pressure against the UK government and against Boris Johnson and Priti Patel with this card. Which means that I don't think that this drum of the channel uh, will not uh, reproduce soon. I think that the things will get worse and worse and worse in the next year and the next month, of course. So... Uh, I want to just to ask you about how the UK government can achieve or they will uh, try to that uh, this election and in the next year. This is my question and thank you. Okay, before you leave us, Ayub, I, I will ask my guest about your question, but I have a question for you. You talk about the presidential campaign for Macron and other 
uh, candidate and you talk about the pressure card uh, for politics. So in your opinion, uh, who should be held accountable for this disaster? People who died in this channel, the French government or the UK one? Of course, both. both. Uh, the UK government uh, with Boris Johnson and uh, all uh, and uh, the Prédé Patel and uh, on the other side we have uh, this uh, Macron and his uh, ministers who are all now playing with this card immigration, immigration. Yesterday we had that, uh, for example, the candidate Eric Zemmour say that my policy is zero immigrant in my country. So I think it's uh, the responsibility shared between Boris Johnson and Macron. And I think that everyone now is paying the price of the Brexit, who was fueled by uh, to stop immigration and to reduce the number of immigrants who are coming in the country. So I think uh, the responsibility is shared between these two persons, Macron and Boris Johnson, and uh, as well, we are now paying the price of the, the, the Brexit because now even for the security cooperation, for the intelligent cooperation between the France and the UK now are in the lowest level since years. So now I think that that's why I'm thinking uh, in the next year and even for the next year. Yeah, thank you very much, Ayub, for uh, your contribution. And my question to Georgina. Uh, are there asylum seekers now who fled their countries, fled the persecution and jail in their countries turn into pressure cards for a presidential campaign in, in France, as Ayub said? Um, well, I suppose I, I don't know exactly how you know Macron works. Um, all I'd say, though, is is I think Sally touched on it earlier about the, the UK taking their fair share. And I think until that's the case, you know, when you compare the UK to, to other countries in Europe, then um, well, then it's not even, a, I don't know, it's not even a balanced battleground. It's sort of, you know, it's this spat, but it's just so indicative of, of what this government is like in general of, you know, the, the, and, and the whole Brexit thing of pulling the drawbridge up and refusing to take responsibility. Um, you know, this, this government isn't even close to taking its own responsibility. Um, and, and sure, it, I mean, these, it's always, you know, these things are always used as, as, as like a, a political, um, you know, tool in, in the in the lead up to, to elections because it plays on people's, you know, fears and and all this stuff. It's sort of this really base sort of emotional stuff. But um, it it's just my view of, of this government is is that until they take some more responsibility and and as the um you know the speaker just just said um it's going to get worse in the coming year in the coming years in the coming decades you know we're going to see huge shifts on the you know geopolitical st stage with climate change and um you know and and all the conflict that will be emerging and being exacerbated because of that and and this it, it's not going away so the time is to really take responsibility now um and you know you can't just keep pulling the drawbridge up and 
and think that these strongman tactics are going to be a deterrent. Um, It's about taking responsibility, providing safe passage, taking, you know, the numbers that are, um, you know, necessary, you know, for the state, for the, for the level of the crisis and um, up there with, you know, what other countries are are committing to. So, um, yeah, a bold boldness comes in and sort of confronting the issue, you know, front on, not, not, not pulling the drawbridge up. I, I wanted to just ask Georgina about the bill. I mean, you did, Georgina, you did touch on it earlier about the uh, offshore processing centres and, you know, parts of this bill will emulate the Australian system. And and I think it was pretty Patel who suggested Rwanda, refugees could be sent to Rwanda while they're processed. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, why are we borrowing from the Australian system when there are, there is a lot of testimony from people who were held in the you know in this on offshore where they talk about the mental health issues they have from being from being there and and the suicidal tendencies. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 political. It's it's callous um, political manoeuvring. It's it isn't inhumane. You know, it's completely inhumane. It's we know of the appalling treatment that refugees suffered. You know, at the hands of you know the the Australian mandatory detention system and offshore processing it's, it's absolutely disgusting i mean why why is this government replicating it well for, poli- for political reasons to sort of invoke this sense that somehow they're these like strong players but but they're not it's a sign of weakness politically it's not a global outlook it's not taking responsibility um it's yeah and but also i mean there's you know i suppose there's two sides of it there's the inhumane treatment and how just appalling that is that without um just like a blanket (laughs) um offshore sort of processing for for anyone who comes whether you know they're a pregnant woman or you know people who have suffered the most um horrendous you know atrocities and experiencing trauma and that that blanket approach is you know it's it's disgusting it's it's absolutely awful so you've got you've got that side of things but then you've also got the practicality side of things and and i was reading recently that the just the insane cost of doing that what it cost australia to to process refugees offshore was it was an insane amount of money per i can tell i can um, tell you how much it was because i i read that was, article it was, was it 300 300 8, no, 8.2 billion yeah something like 300,000 per per refugee per year yeah because it's 300 3,000 people so it was um so you've got that just it's just a completely <laughs> sort of um it's a costly exercise as well. And um yeah, so there so you sort of got those those two and just the impracticalities of it. And as far as I know, there's nothing identified in the bill yet to to sort of state how um how this is actually gonna work. So it's not even been 
it's, it's not even a well-developed plan. So it's just this, this rhetoric. Um, and yeah, it's appalling on all levels. Um, and, and yeah. And, just, yeah. So, yeah. And talk about all levels. I think one of the most important level is the asylum seeker, the people who are desperate and who cross the channel. And I think Sally had a first-hand experience with those people. So my question, how would this bill affect the people you work with, Sally? Well, right now we already have so many people who are still in this state of limbo in the asylum system. I can't even, I can't remember what the statistics are, but it's, it's a, it's increased year on year and especially with covid um in the pandemic they've sort of used that as an excuse to process applications even more slowly so um that <laughs> it's what is interesting actually when you when you think about it is that now because of the end of dublin 3 there is no third country for people to be sent back to because the UK doesn't have any agreements with any countries um, to send people back when they if they are a failed asylum seeker if their if their asylum claim fails they don't have any agreements so when, when they were in the EU this is the irony under Dublin three they could return people to the the country that they had perhaps they'd been fingerprinted in France or in Germany or they they would be able to return them to that country um, that, that doesn't exist anymore so what's going to replace that and does that mean that it eventually maybe it will become easier for people to, to claim asylum in the UK wouldn't that be great <laughs> and probably that's wishful thinking <laughs> but um I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just very worried about the direction of this government. I have been for a long, long time. Obviously, this hostile environment has been in the works for a long time. You know, under Theresa May, so years ago, this was this was already in development. And I think that we're now with Pretty Patel's plans. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of reaching the peak now. I, I, I hope that this. That, this nationality and borders bill has it been to the house of lords and it's been sent back to um to the house of commons is that where we are with it if, if we talk about looking forward to the future and as as a, a refugee uh, i've lived in limbo for 40 months the home office puts me in this uh a very bad and dirty limbo in ipswich mm. with my parents so I can imagine the, the, the problem that facing uh, every single asylum seeker in this country. So my question, what are the kind of problems that people you have worked with are facing beyond the struggle of claiming asylum? Well, many people are facing problems with their mental health. I think that's one of the, the issues of being placed in limbo for such a long time. For example, there's an individual that we've been working with since he was in Napier last year. He um, fled his country because he was a Christian in a country where Christians will be uh, disappeared. Let's put it that way. Um, he did go. He did end up in Greece, um, where he ended up homeless. Although he tried to claim asylum there and. He was even beaten by the police 
in Greece. So not a good country for him to stay in. So he left Greece, eventually gets to the UK and ends up in Napier. But by this point, he is having suicidal thoughts. Um, and he's given a very, very strong uh, cocktail of drugs to keep to help him to sleep. Um, but also these are drugs that are contraindicated. So we don't find this out till a lot later, but they're drugs that you shouldn't take together because they would have added to the psychosis. Um, he catches COVID uh, during the large outbreak and is terrified for his life and threatens to, when, when the buildings are set on fire, threatens to run into the fire and end his life. Um, and eventually he's, he, well, actually, I say eventually he's moved out, but not before my friend and I made sure an ambulance went in the day after the fire to 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 get to him, to, to give him medical treatment. But even then he wasn't removed from the camp. He, they kept him in the camp, which I couldn't quite believe. And it took a huge amount of intervention from other in, NGOs to get him removed from the camp. Um, and he's the, over the last year, he's been through a real sort of roller coaster with his mental health. I know that he's actually been sectioned at one point. Um, and the fact that he keeps being moved around from place to place and cut off from any friends that he has traveled with or has developed a friendship with along the way who supported him, and then suddenly he ends up somewhere else. I mean, this is just a picture there's a snapshot of just one person that we've worked with us I suppose it's quite a, an extreme case but but actually I, it's probably not that extreme it's, I think it, it is replicated across other situations he, I mean it's he, and he's still in a situation now you know he's only recently contacting me the other day because his phone doesn't work anymore and he needs a phone but he doesn't know who to ask and I know everything he's been through and I know how serious it will be for him not to have a phone so I'm going to do everything I can to try and get a mobile phone to him um and he he'll he'll be he's you know being in this this limbo and I'm sure as some of you as you said, you lived through this yourself, and I was I was reading about you and the things that happened to you as well. Yeah, it's, after it's, everything that you've been through, it is really it's it's really mentally it's it's really tough. It's really really tough. It's this is such a sad news, and it it was hard. It was tough to 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 live just in a dirty limbo. I I think the home office, uh, they they can never imagine that. Um, this limbo in Ipswich that I have mm. lived for 40 months with my old parents, uh, how can I say, animals can't live in such a limbo. You know, it was dirty, mm. dumps every, mm. everywhere, and the wall have a very bad smell. I'm asthmatic. My mother had a, a bronchial asthma, and we claimed several times to the home office, but there is no response. Just this is the, the, the place you should accept, you should live until you're guaranteed as a refugee. So it, it's an inhuman dealing with yeah. these people. Yeah, and you, they make you completely powerless. You're completely at their behest, and then you it's like even every time you'd have to ring migrant help, which is the the um agency which is the so called charity which is contracted to 
to by the Home Office to deal with all of the inquiries from asylum seekers and their accommodation and things like that. And they, we know they, they in our experience, they don't have a great track record of, of actually being that first response. It, it ends up being NGOs or volunteers on the ground like me. Yeah, it's a, such a sad story. So, Sally, what do people like this guy and other people who come to the drop-in? What do they tell you that they want, you know, for their future? Um, actually, do you know what? I still have it on my desk. <laughs> we once had a meeting with a group that we had. They've all they've all since left and been dispersed around the country. But the things that they wanted were they wanted to learn English. They wanted to learn how to swim. This was in the summer. It was interesting because we're by the sea, obviously. Um, they wanted to learn to drive, so they wanted to do driving theory because these are all things that can help them work. Um, they wanted to learn to play instruments, and they want. And actually, the, the number one thing on the list was integration. They said they were saying to me, "Integration, integration, integration," and they, then they wanted to learn all these things that would help them to integrate. Yeah, people want people mm. want to work. You know, they want they they. I think asylum seekers should be allowed to work. I mean, you have all of these people with tremendous amounts of skills as well, and they're not allowed to work when we need when we need them as well. Yeah, that's yeah. And the Home Office just uh, put the SOL, the short occupational list. You know, after one year, you can find some. Uh, Unappropriate work for you. Um, for example, I was a dentist and yeah. journalist, and this short occupational list gave me uh, a job like a ballet dancer, something like this. So, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah, something completely inappropriate. <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much, all of you, for this very interesting conversation. Thank you to Amelia Smith and Sally Hoff and Virginia Triller uh, for joining us uh, today. Just to wrap up this episode, Refugees are human beings. They are not your enemies anywhere. They have their families, they have dreams, they have ambitions, and they have their own great lives. But they also have no choice. They fear persecution, they fear jail, their lives were in danger in their home countries. So please do not stereotype the refugees as invader or as your enemy. Do welcome the refugee. And if you do not like refugees, just tell your government don't create them. Thank you very much for joining me today in this episode of Untold Stories. Stay tuned every Tuesday at 7 p.m. GMT exclusively on Colin. And to get notifications of all episodes and to listen to all our Untold Stories, follow me on Colin and subscribe Untold Stories podcast. And please do share this episode with your friends and on your other social media platform. And finally, if you have your own Untold Story and want to share it with me, just email it to untoldthestories.colon at gmail.com. See you all next week. Thank you. Bye.